Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Noah Alvarez, and you are tuned into another episode of the My Mike and I podcast, episode 124. And before we get into anything or the guest for this week's show, did want to remind you guys that this episode, as all the other episodes are, are brought to you by Popple.co. Essentially, if you are a business owner with a local brand that are looking to promote your brand when you come and contact and encounter different people who have questions about your brand. It's an attachment that goes onto the back of your phone. And what you do is you program whatever you want to promote on the app. So let's say you have a website for your barbecue business, right? You want to promote your website and your IG page. You program that. And that way, when you meet someone at a party or at a park or whatever you may be, I know it's social distancing, so we're not really seeing a whole lot of new people. But when you do meet someone new and they ask about your business, you can tap the back of your phone to the back of their phone with the popple attachment, regardless if they have it or not. And on their screen pops up all the information that you programmed on the app. Right there, easy to use, easy to touch and grab and go. Popple.co, P-O-P-L dot C-O. And if you use promo code LOCKER, you get 20% off on every single purchase. That's promo code LOCKER for 20% off on every single purchase. And while you're at it, be sure to check out LockerRoomSportsCA.com. It's a website that myself, Max Farias, Carl Cervantes, and I started over quarantine. And we got a solid team of like 12 writers writing about sports, pop culture. I just dropped an article recently too, um, what to watch during quarantine, the series that I started obviously during quarantine. And I highlight a very famous rap group. I'm not gonna spoil it because you guys need to go check it out. It's, uh, it's a series, yeah, it's a series that highlights a very famous rap group that's on Hulu. Already enough hints for you right there, but be sure to go check it out at LockerRoomSportsCA.com. This episode is also brought to you by PhoenixFit.com, spelled F-N-X-F-I-T.com. It's a nutritional supplement company that sells your pre-workouts, post-workouts, as well as some BCAAs and a whole bunch of other supplements that are going to be great for you and remain your fittest and best version of yourself. Also, they have some really cool CBD gummies that I've been using to help me sleep when I feel very anxious, to kind of help calm my nerves and be able to get that good night's rest, whether it's six hours, eight hours, 10 hours. Actually, I never really sleep 10 hours. I don't know why I threw that in there. But yeah, really great stuff over there. And the coolest thing about Phoenix Fit that I like telling people is if every purchase you make, they donate a gallon of water to people of need across the globe through their live program. So it's super cool. Be sure to check out the live program on their website. Their website, once again, is fnxfit.com, Phoenix Fit. And if you use promo code my Mike and I with the letter N, so that's my Mike, the letter N I, you can get 15% off on every single purchase. That's promo code my Mike and I with the letter N for 15% off on every single purchase. Now, before we get into this week's guest, last thing to address, thank you, Generic Sports, for producing the instrumental playing in the background. Be sure to check out his work on Twitter, SoundCloud, Instagram, Bandcamp. Just search up Generic Sports, no tricky spelling. And shout out to my man, Vince Correa, for designing the Mike and I logo that you are seeing in your screen. He also helped design an alternate logo. Shout out to my boy, Josh Adams, for designing some logos for the stickers. Shout out to Jules, uh, I don't know if I know her last name, Jules. You know Jules. Jules, if you're listening, you know I'm shouting you out. Uh, my bad. <laughs> Jules Santana, I believe it is. Jules Santana, who designed some of the Mike and I stickers, too. Be on the lookout for those social media pages. We are going to be doing a giveaway for those stickers, and you could have a chance to win a Visa gift card or an In-N-Out gift card. So, yeah, be on the lookout for that. I'll be making a post on the Instagram page soon, at my period Mike and period I. One more time, that's at my period Mike and period I. Also, check me out on Twitter. I'll be posting it on there. 
at underscore Noah Alvarez. I'll also be posting it on Facebook. You know, I'm not gonna give my Facebook away. I don't want more friends on that. And uh, <laughs> but I will be posting it on there too for any of my older, my family members that are on there that are wondering about it. And I'll be sending out some texts too if you're interested in uh, in that giveaway. So that being said. Now we can get into the guest for episode 124. I don't know why my voice got all soft, but I'm really excited for this week's guest. Can I get a drum roll, please? This week's guest is none other than Vincent Sarmiento. Vicente Sarmiento. He's running for mayor this 2020 election in the city of Santa Ana. He served on the Santa Ana City Council for Ward 1 since 2007. This dude was born in Bolivia. He's an immigrant, been in Santa Ana since the, the late 60s. We talk about a whole bunch of stuff basically growing up in Santa Ana, the differences, uh, some of his policies, obviously, growing up in a, you know, in a Hispanic, but not Mexican, a Bolivian family. And so, yeah, it's a whole, man, it's, it's a really good conversation. I'm definitely proud of this interview. Definitely proud of all my interviews, but definitely the, the better and better I get and the more diverse people that I have on the show. Man, it just brings a whole new level of excitement and joy to me. Like, it, it just brings a lot of joy. Without further ado, hope you enjoy the conversation between Vicente Sarmiento and myself. Well, really wanted to thank you again for hopping on this show and, you know, taking some time out of your Saturday to record the podcast. The first question I, I wanted to ask you is, what was growing up in Santa Ana like for you? You know what? Thanks, Noah, for having me on and thanks for having this platform for us to talk about, you know, important issues and, you know, just people in the community. Um, you know, it was really different because Santana in the early 60s when my family arrived, um, we arrived in right around, you know, 65. Um, the demographics were really different, right? So we were probably the only Spanish-speaking family in our neighborhood when, when we first got here. So a lot of folks were, um, it was kind of a retirement community back then. It was a much smaller city, a lot of orange groves. You know, um, we didn't see the Latino influence. We didn't really see an immigrant influence. I mean, you know, we had neighbors who were German, who were Irish, who were, you know, just very, very um, sort of a monolithic Anglo, um, you know, uh, neighborhood. And then I think that was right at the beginning of, you know, sort of the white flight to uh, the suburbs in mm -hmm. South County and other areas. And then it was followed by obviously the early 70s, uh, mid 70s, you know, this wave of, um, of immigration to Santana and Santana became a port of entry for many people. And, you know, for me, um, you know, I, I'm, I was born in La Paz, Bolivia. So our journey was a little bit further, um, even though there, you know, there's a lot of Latinos in Santana now, uh, the majority of them are from Mexico. And, you know, for us, it was, it was even that dynamic within the Latino community being mm -hmm. Bolivian uh, and non-Mexicano, but um, you know, the language, and you know the food <laughs> and, and and the culture kind of brought everybody together but yeah really different city than what we have today okay did you ever get to visit your country bolivia as an adult yeah you know i've gone back a few times um because it's a 14-hour plane ride wow. so it's a it's a real hike and so and it's also the highest city in the world right so la paz is two miles above sea level and yeah man wow. it's like going it's like going you know to go uh, to the Himalayas, right? But there's an yeah. actual city up there. Um, so we haven't been able to go back as often as we would have, would have liked because it was just, you know, cost prohibitive, you know, really expensive. And then it really is, um, for those of us who are like, um, you know, flatlanders, 
you know, going two miles above sea, sea yeah. level is harsh. So I brought, mm -hmm. I took my family back with me um, a couple of years ago for the first time. And, mm -hmm. um, and yeah, it, they loved it just because, you know, their mom is from Zacatecas, Mexico. Mm -hmm. um, we had gone back there quite a few times because it's just easy, right? It's, it's an easy plane ride. It's a trip. <laughs> But going on this trek was different, but, <laughs> but they dug it because I think, you know, the, uh, you know, for them, I think they don't have the experience that maybe I had as a first generation, you know, where, you know, we came, even though I was really young, um, we still had a lot of the culture, a lot of the history and just a lot of the customs that we brought back with music and food. And, and, um, you know, our, our house was like, you know, um, sort of the halfway house for Bolivians coming to, you know, the United States, you know, cause okay. well, you know, just like any immigrant, I think experience, you know, you have, you know, probably like a family member who arrives in one place and then other family members start arriving and that's their place to at least crash for the first, right. you know, few months until they get themselves settled, find a job, find their own place. And back then, you know, it was, um, you know, there was plenty of work and plenty of, um, opportunities. Uh, things weren't as, you know, um, uh, you know, hostile maybe back then, but, uh, but there weren't that many Latino families. So, you know, there was no Latino businesses. Um, you know, we probably, it, I would say, you know, the demographics are completely inverse to what they are now where wow. the city's 80% Latino, um, you know, 10% Anglo, 10% Asian. It was probably 80% Anglo back then. Right. And, and maybe 10 or 15% Latino at most, you still had old neighborhoods like, Logan and Delhi and um, uh, which are the oldest neighborhoods in town, you had some braceros there, but they were really confined to just those neighborhoods. Right. And, mm -hmm. um, and there weren't really many Latino families sort of in the, in the, what they would call sort of central city neighborhoods. Okay. Well, since there was a higher population of Anglos also in the sixties too, when, you know, race relations was relatively high, did you and your family kind of feel any discriminatory or prejudice against you guys when you guys were growing up? Yeah, man. You know, I think, you know, it was, it, I think we felt um, kind of fearful, you know, and that, you know, just not being certain of like, Hey, how people are going to treat you, you know, whether you're going to be received well, I think, um, you know, we obviously couldn't speak Spanish. And so the first thing that, you know, our parents try to teach us is, Hey, forget about the Spanish, learn English as quickly as you can and abandon, you know, yeah. Spanish. And it was, that was, the, you know, sort of the negative part. And I think it's, you know, I think our parents love for us to protect us, but at the same time, you know, you start, you know, you start thinking, well, is there something wrong with my culture? Is there something wrong with me speaking Spanish? You know, you go through these sort of, you know, crisis moments of identity and, um, you know, just, you know, feeling inferior. Right. Um, and, and so I think that was difficult. I don't know if there was like overt racism because there were some decent families, right. That we had uh, near us that really did help us through and, you know, helped, um, you know, my mom find a job and, you know, help take care of us when, you know, they were working because, you know, they were working, you know, double shifts. And so we were home a lot by ourselves. But mm -hmm. um, so there was, some, there was, there was decency, you know, um, I don't think there was that, you know, again, hostility. I think the hostility now is, um, it's probably worse than it was back then, at least in Santana, because, you know, they just, you know, we're such a small minority. And mm -hmm. uh, I think now being a much larger group, um, you know, people feel maybe, you know, intimidated by that, that, you know, we are here to impose, you know, changes, but really, I mean, you know, if you look at East coast cities, the same thing that happened to them with the influence from the German and the Irish and the Italian, mm -hmm. I mean, it's the same thing that happens here, right? The influence from Mexico being so close to the, to the border, 
um, you have to have those changes. But, you know, we didn't see that. And, and that's something, you know, I see now is that um, people just don't want Santana to um, kind of celebrate who we are now. Right. Yeah. And that's that's what tough is that, you know, we're trying to be like, you know, Mission Viejo. We're trying to be like Lake Fort. Look, we're just never going to be that, you know, mm -hmm. ever. And so why not celebrate, you know, all these things that have happened in the 60s and the 70s and then in the 70s. Um, you know, you remember the, the um, you know, the refugees from Vietnam came. Mm -hmm. and, and so Little Saigon started in Santana. I mean, it was, oh. you know, literally there, there's, a, there's an intersection on First and Sullivan mm -hmm. where there's still a Vietnamese restaurant. But all the refugees, land, you know, came here. So this was really the birthplace of um, Little Saigon. And then eventually they started moving west into Westminster, Garden Grove, um, uh, some of the other cities. But, um, you know, the cool thing about Santana, I think, is that, you know, um, we really need and we should, you know, embrace that diverse, you know, the diverse communities that we have here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's one thing I noticed as I've gotten older and just gotten to see and meet more people from different places, especially colleges. I think that's a great route to do that. You know, growing up in Santa Ana, just most parts of Orange County, at least central Orange County, it's so diverse that I never like, you know, I took it for granted, I guess, when you meet people that are from different parts of Nevada, Utah, and you meet just people in college from all places of the world in the country. And they're not used to like, you know, being Vietnamese food and Mexican food and El Salvadorian food and, you know, Chinese food and Japanese food all within like two mile radius of where we live here in like central Orange County. I just, you know, kind of, I didn't realize that was, it was such a such a great opportunity to obviously learn about different cultures and whatnot. But it's you know we're very fortunate to live in this kind of area. Yeah, you know, and I think I think to that to your point, I know the first time I went away and you know I went to school up in the Bay Area and that's where I met my wife. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, and she's from East LA, right? So we both you know kind of met and we had a really similar experience because Santana, in many ways, is very similar to you know East LA, Boyle Heights, Lincoln Heights because. Um, what we would always say is our parents wouldn't have to, there is no need to speak English, right? Because you could go to, you know, mercados, you could go to different places and, you know, you know, there's somebody there that's going to speak to you in Spanish. Once you go like sort of out of these, you know, spaces, um, you realize, wow, you know, we live kind of in a very unique area, right? Mm -hmm. Where I think our culture is so embedded now. Um, it's taken generation and it's taken decades, right? But, mm -hmm. but um, I know my mother-in-law didn't speak a word of English, right? And she, she lived, you know, right in East Los and, you know, had her, you know, small business and had, you know, her, um, you know, her, her place and her neighbors and she'd go, she'd go everywhere. I mean, she was just, you know, very at home um, and she didn't have to speak the language. So I think that is something that when you leave here, you realize, you know, the country's so large. If you go back East, you know, my son right now is, um, you know, is in Boston. He's in his second year in college. And so, you know, you realize that, the South, the Midwest, I mean, really, really different um, experiences. Oh, yeah. Right? And I think, um, yeah, we have a unique space here, man. It is, uh, Santana is, is definitely, you know, a place of its own. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you mentioned UC Berkeley, or I know you graduated from UC Berkeley from a bachelor's, but before you got into college, how were you as a student through grade school and high school? You know, I, I, I you know, I wasn't really... <laughs> A, an outstanding student or, you know, somebody who stood out. Um, you know, I went to John Muir, the old John Muir, the original John Muir oh, that wow. was on the brand. Yeah. Um, and then the, the I'm going to date myself, man. Uh, back in 71, when we were in grade school, uh, there was a big earthquake, right? A huge earthquake. It severed the building in half. 
Um, and so they bust us over to Sierra. Um, yeah, and Sierra Intermediate used to be Sierra Elementary, so they bust a lot of us over to Sierra. And then uh, I went to Willard, um, and then I went to Foothill for, for high school. But look, I, for me, um, I just wasn't somebody who was who took advantage of the opportunity that was available to me as much as I could have. Right? I mean, I was never, you know, uh, you know, uh, failing, but I was just kind of gliding through. And I think a lot of it has to do with what I was telling you, you know, um, you do feel kind of inferior a little bit. You do, you do feel like, Hey man, you know, my future is not going to be bright. Um, I'm just going to get through this and, and, and move along. Um, and then, you know, uh, I think when, you know, my experience going to college, cause I didn't start out at Cal, I started out at Cal state Fullerton. And mm -hmm. so I went there and I realized immediately I was totally unprepared. Right. I mean, not just for the academic change, but really, um, culturally. And, um, and I ended up, uh, um, what they used to call invited to leave, which is a nice word to say you're expelled. <laughs> so, but I, but I think it's because, you know, a lot of us, you know, um, you know, didn't take advantage of like, you know, things like how do you learn how to, how to study, right. You know, how do you manage time? How do you, um, you know, take notes, just basic nuts and bolts of being able to do well in college and they expect you to do well once you walk in. Mm -hmm. And so that took me a little while. And so, you know, but that experience was a really learning, was a really important learning moment because um, I met some really good people there that, um, you know, just other Latino students, like you said, um, not really from Santana, but just from different places that, you know, we were sort of our support network, right? And we helped, helped each other out. People would teach you how to take notes, how to study, how to review. Um, and those were really critical moments for me. And that's when I, you know, learned to uh, love to learn, right? I mean, just, you know, just embrace that and realize, hey, this is an opportunity that if I don't take advantage of, you know, um, you know, it's, it's, it's on you forever, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and you're really, and you're there. And I remember this, you know, there's a trip. So this, um, this counselor, back then we used to have affirmative action, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, no longer have it, but it was called the Edu Educational Opportunity Program. And there, there was this lady there, her name was Stephanie Ortiz. She was a former nun. And mm -hmm. so she sat me down because I had to appeal to get back in. And she told me, she goes, man, she goes, you know, I'm going to let you in, but let you back in. She goes, but you need to understand you are um, taking the space of somebody else who's more deserving than you. And you always need to understand that. Um, so, I mean, she laid it down hard, right? So she just said, look, you are either going to do something with this opportunity um, and if you don't, you realize you're doing it at the expense of somebody else who could be here who may do, you know, more with it. But it was a, you know, it was one of those moments when somebody just makes you realize in a sentence, like what you're doing and what this means. And so um, I was never able to go back and thank her because she passed away soon after that. But she was cool people because I think she made, she made me understand how valuable that moment and that opportunity was. And, uh, and from then on, you know, Look, I, I, I really took her words to heart. Um, people that I met in college, you know, helped me study and, uh, you know, was on the dean's list for the next four semesters and was, wow. you know, was, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, was called by, you know, Berkeley to, to apply there. And so I applied, you know, went on and, you know, uh, received my uh, degree in economics there and then went on to law school at UCLA. But I think it's moments like that from people that care and maybe it was a harsh truth that you needed to hear. And sometimes you can't be compassionate. You have to be real. And you yeah. just have to say, look, you have to do this because this isn't about just you. This is about people who 
could be here in in your place and you're not taking advantage of it mm -hmm. wow so yeah. how did, that's that's a pretty incredible story if you can recall what were some of the studying strategies that you learned that kind of helped you take that next leap and get you on the dean's list you know i i would say man is um you know they had remedial classes back then because affirmative action was a was an academic policy still they had classes that would you know teach students who were underperforming how to study like really basic stuff things that you should know going into college but yet they allocated resources for that so it was just like i said just basic things like how do you um you know how do you prepare for a test how do you note take how do you um you know uh, you know how do you do um you know uh you know just cards and flashcards and yeah just just stuff that's like basic right because back then we didn't have computers we didn't have the internet so it was like man it was you know brick and mortar it was you know hardcore books and stuff but um but i think that coupled with like you know the students that i met there who were like a community and that community embraced me and you know and i embraced them and we like you know we would stay up we would pull all-nighters we you know all of us would bring food and we you know you know study together and we just became tight and close and i think that's what really got me through and that's what made me realize you know this is um you know education this opportunity is like you know totally critical right and you know but it was just those basic things that i think i um you know i i ended up um you know just embracing and now those are those formed sort of my value system now because i think that as i move through i realize that a lot of our you know students in santana aren't getting that same background maybe that I was deficient in, you know, and so how do we do that? How do we, you know, um, provide those experience like experiences like for me, I used to play basketball. So I played basketball at Cabrillo Park. There were programs there, you know, we'd go there and shoot around and, you know, that made, that at least kept me from getting into serious trouble, right? Still got into some trouble, just not serious trouble. But, you know, when you have programs like that, we go swimming at, you know, Memorial Park, you know, it was where I, you know, where you kind of learned how to swim and, you know, and you, you just learned how to, you know, be in the water. Um, uh, but those programs and just hanging out um, at the boys club, I remember, um, you know, uh, and just playing ping pong, you know, with friends. Yeah. Those experiences, I think, that were safe spaces that were, you know, that were um, important for us to have. I see a lot of that just being not as available and not as plentiful, right? Because it was a small city back then. I mean, we're talking, we definitely weren't like 300,000. Now we're, you know, upwards of 350,000 and probably more just because we're not counted properly. Our community is right. really difficult to count. So that, I know that's an underestimate of who, you know, how large we are. But yeah, it's, you know, I'm hoping that some of those things that were, that helped me get through back then, you know, we can sort of reinstill. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because you mentioned the whole ping pong thing. And that's something that both my parents, they're from your generation as well. And growing up in Santa Ana, they always have stories of like ping pong tournaments at Delhi Center or whatever park. And I'm just like, man, why did they have that when I was growing up? You know, and it just I, I did grow up to learn and how to swim and do some of more of the advanced swim techniques at Memorial Pool. So that was, you know, kind of I can relate with you on that. But it definitely felt like a lot of those programs that my parents and uncles all got to talk about whether it was like three on three tournaments at the park or, you know, just stuff that the city was putting on for the youth and teenagers or young adults, they, they don't have those things anymore or I don't hear about them or they're not advertised properly. And I just never got to experience. I did. I still had my own experiences, but I didn't have those experiences that they tell me about. Yeah. They're not as, you know, I think maybe because it was a smaller population, maybe you could serve it better. Um, 
but I think that's one. But the other one is that there was a moment where Santana started shifting its resources away from investing in its people and in its youth and saying, we really just need all this money to go into public safety. And that's the only way we're going to keep the city safe and healthy. And, you know, um, now I think everybody's starting to rethink that. You know, I think that, um, you know, there's been a, there's a moment right now and, and hopefully it turns into a, you know, a movement and an effort to say, we have to reevaluate some of the priorities and some of the things that we're funding because we all want a safe society. We all want a safe community. You know, nobody wants um, to live in a dangerous condition, but there's ways you can achieve that safety without just simply policing, right? That's the easy thing to do. That's the easy option to say, let's just, you know, hire more, you know, more officers and let's just throw money at the problem. By throwing money at the problem, you're not really getting to the underlying cause. You're just, you're just feeding the symptom, right? right? And, and to the extent that I think, you know, Santana um, was, you know, a safer place maybe back when there was really, uh, you know, a, a, a full effort to try to provide just, you know, options, you know, and I, and I remember even, you know, doing summer programs through the county, right? Going and working and you had, you know, you'd be able to make some money and you'd be able to learn something. And then there were, you know, internships at, you know, at City Hall and, you know, different departments. So I think a lot of those resources ended up shifting away. And, you know, now we have, you know, public safety, which is vital. I mean, you know, nobody's saying, hey, let's, you know, let's dismantle or let's, you know, get rid of it. But it it's now a disproportionate amount that it takes from, um, you know, our unrestric unrestricted um, general fund, which are monies that, you know, all of us pay into for taxes. And now it's like upwards of like 60%. So that's when you realize a community's value system and what they prioritize, right? And I think for us, it almost sends a message like, hey, we have to be policed. And that's not a good message either because then we think we are living in a, you know, in sort of a criminal environment. And I don't think that's true. I think, you know, for Santana, um, we have our, we have our um, crime element, right? Mm -hmm. a, a criminal element, but it's not, it's not vast. It's not widespread. I think for us, we're a pretty law abiding community because we have so many undocumented res, um, residents that live in Santana. They're just fearful to go out. I mean, yeah. you, know, uh, you know, and they're living under like, you know, like, you know, real just, you know, fear of being caught, deported, repatriated, you know, and separated from their families. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't think we have this like violent, you know, uh, society. I think we have, we have our issues, but we just need to address those sort of root, uh, you know, those uh, root causes better, you know, right. more mm -hmm. And like how I like to describe policing to a friends or like when I have that kind of conversation is like, let's say you're, you know, a pitcher, you play a sport and your shoulder's bugging you and it's, you know, been, there's a lot of pain that you're having with it. You take painkillers to get rid of the pain for momentarily. And obviously like you can still play your sport and still do kind of well, but you know, let's say it's a deeper rooted problem and you need to get surgery on it or you need to rehab it or you need to do certain exercises to stretch just to kind of, help recover from that. And I feel like that's like where we're starting to reach out to as a society. And I know the defund the police thing kind of gets misconstrued by one side or the other. Like some people think it's way extreme this way. Some people think it's really bad that way. And I get it, but I, I understand that like policing and putting a bunch of more money into that is just kind of like taking more painkillers for a problem that may need surgery for. And it's like, hey, we need to do more of these things like invest into the youth or have these different internship programs so that kids aren't growing up to be adults that are fearful of police because that shouldn't be the way it is either, you know? Yeah, no, you're right. You know, and 
look, for me, it's, it's kind of personal because I know that, um, you know, I had a brother-in-law who was a deputy sheriff in LA County. And so he was shot and killed, you know, as a really young man, you know, um, you know, he's 33 years old and, uh, look, so it's personal. I get how difficult and how dangerous the job is. Um, but again, even, you know, even when he was alive, we'd have these conversations that, yeah, you just have to, you know, you have to reevaluate how you're investing in, in, in safety and, you know, in law enforcement. And I think having, you know, a youth and our, having youth, you know, doing things that are, you know, positive and constructive um, goes a long way in, in doing that. Because like you said, the mistrust that some youth have in law enforcement almost leads you down a certain path, right? Versus having trust and confidence and a good relationship with, with and a healthy, you know, relationship with law enforcement. Look, it's a different thing, you know. Um, uh, but, you know, he would say, uh, you know, some people in law enforcement really shouldn't have that much authority mm-hmm. and shouldn't be, you know, um, wielding weapons, right? Because right. they're given awesome authority. And many of them, um, you know, are former military, you know, they're, they're um, you know, maybe have some underlying PTSD issues. But I think, you know, law enforcement hasn't done the best job in vetting some of those folks. And, you know, we're, I think in Santana, you know, we're with our law enforcement and our police department, it's been, you know, the, the really good thing about it is that I know there was a real huge effort, you know, a few years back to make sure to hire bilingual officers, because I think when you have people that can speak to you in your, you know, in your language, and we have so many monolingual Spanish speakers, it goes a long way. The other, the other thing was there was an effort to hire a lot of people who grew up in Santana. So yeah. those two things are really good things, right? And, and I think they go a long way. I think we're missing a few steps where we need to realize if we can maybe build that or create that bridge between you know, um, uh, law enforcement and the community and try to break down that lack of trust that we have and really speak to one another and say, okay, what is our goal? We want to yeah. help. We, we want a healthy society. We want a healthy environment. We want a safe environment. All of us want that. You know, yeah. folks that are saying let's reevaluate are not saying we want chaos. We want, you know, danger. We want, you know, criminality. None of us, I think, you know, at least that's not the, the point of view that I'm coming from. I just figure we need to do it in a, in a different way because what we've been doing hasn't been working and yielding the results that we need. Right. And it's tough as a city grows, it's hard to have those connections between the police officers and the community. That's one thing that I feel like smaller communities and smaller cities and smaller towns have better of, right? If there's fewer people and those few officers, chances are they grew up in those towns. They knew the people they went to high school with. And it's a lot different if you are, you know, talking, you, you pull over your you know, high school teammates from a, whatever sport you played, their, their son or their daughter, and you pull them over late at night. And you have just a kind of different perspective. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, I played with you with so-and-so in high school. And, you know, you have that kind of connection. Obviously, as the city grows, it's a little tougher to do that. But I remember even in elementary school going to Greenville Fundamental, they had the whole D.A.R.E. program, right? But that was, they only came to talk to us once. And it was a one-time thing. They talked to us about the drugs and whatever they else they talked about. But it, it just seemed like, okay, like that was kind of like a minimal effort thing. And I don't recall too much of it because it was only a one-time thing as we were, I think, in fifth grade going on to middle school. So it would have been nice yeah. to have maybe consistency from kindergarten, you know, just little presentations here and there, or career day, they kind of hop in and talk about what they do, kind of incorporate more things like that, you know? Yeah, no, I think, you know, that's, that's huge, right? I mean, that, that, then you grow up with a different perspective, right? And when you're a kid, you're so, um, 
you know, you're so impressionable at that age, right? And you can either see, see something as negative or see something as positive. But if you've grown up seeing like, you know, hey, this positive exchange, you know, your parents, you know, um, being treated well with dignity and, you know, with respect, I think those things are instilled in a kid's mind. And you, you know, you have that as opposed to having to have um, the talk, right? right. Um, like I do with my, you know, two boys, because they're, you know, uh, they're not boys, I guess one's 21, one's 18, but you know, they're still boys to me. They always will be, but they're big kids, you know, um, you know, you know, one six foot, the other one is, you know, close to him, you know, big kids, relatively speaking. And, but they're the most gentle kids you'll ever find. Right. Mm-hmm. But I know that in the wrong situation or in the wrong exchange, they could be in harm's way. So, uh, you know, they're very, you know, they're very Latino looking, um, and you know, maybe when they have their hoodie on, they're very ominous looking, you know, to yeah. somebody who doesn't know them. And that's the fear that, you know, I have as a father. Um, and you know, now as a, you know, somebody who represents many, you know, young kids here in the city, I fear that exchange, right. That they may have, they may be misunderstood. Um, you know, and, and, and some exchange could go wrong and things could be horrible. Right. Um, so as a, as a father of color, you know, with, with, you know, you know young, young boys of color that are very um, big. Uh, yeah. And you just have to have that talk, which is really a difficult one to have. And you feel like when you're having it, it's like, why am I having this conversation? Why is it, you know, why, why is this, why do I have to have this exchange with my son? Um, you know, when you should be talking about good things, Hey, you know, when you go out, you know, be respectful of, you know, who you are. Uh, but now you're talking about life and death, right? You're mm-hmm. talking about, you know, what you should do with your hands, how you should, you know, behave. And, um, and that's unfortunate. That's a really painful conversation to have with, you know, somebody you love, mm-hmm. um, but you see it. And if you don't have it, then you're not equipping, um, you know, that person that you love with the right um, response and the, with the right mentality. But I just felt like, you know, I have to lay this on my son and that's a tough thing for a young person to have to absorb at that age, you know, and it's, it's, you know, part of where we are right now. And I think that's what we're trying to resolve is that we have less of those moments, you know, and and less of that need to have that conversation because we know that, you know, when you're not a person of color, that's not a conversation you have, you know, it's just uh, not necessary. Right. And I think one thing that will counteract that too is us as a Latino community, also the black community, Asian community, and as well as the Polynesian community, any person of color, I feel like we got to stop when we're younger, stop like making fun of people or kind of teasing people who do want to pursue careers in law enforcement, right? Whatever field they want to make it into. But I, you know, I remember as friends, like, oh, you want to, you know, if someone so said they wanted to be a cop, you're like, oh, you know. You know, they'll say a lot of demeaning things to them. And I think that's very common in the black and brown communities and the Polynesian communities. And so we don't get representation and good people, let's say, or better people in those positions of power to patrol the streets and patrol the city. And instead, we're letting other people, whether it's outsiders from out of town or people who don't know the area and that kind of stuff. But I think, you know, it, obviously it's a step-by-step process, but I think that's one thing that I think will help churn the tide as far as views if we have more of our people more brown people more black people more polynesians asians and serving in law enforcement yeah 100 percent, man 100 percent. because there is you know you, you bring your experiences to your job whatever you do yeah. right so if you don't have an experience in our community or you don't have that background it's a foreign element that you're introducing into a very 
different environment, right? So I think to the extent that you have more people that can at least relate, hey, you know, you know, when they go into like, you know, um, a social setting where maybe there's a party, there's a gathering, mm -hmm. if a person knows that they've been in that environment before in Santana, you know, like, hey, you know, there's banda music and yeah, it's loud, you know, um, there's nothing wrong with it. There's, you know, there's nothing dangerous about it. You know, they're cooking, you know, or they're, you know, doing something else. So you can relate to that. But I think for somebody who maybe grew up in the South, you know, has never seen this and then they walk <laughs> in, wow, you know, there's a lot of people in hats here, big belts, I'm kind of scared, you know, I'm kind of yeah. So, you know, I think those things, uh, yeah, don't help. And, you know, and, and I think, you know, you know, kind of just talking about, you know, sort of dangerous environments. I, I mean, I mean, for me, what's been uh, sort of my policy uh, effort, big policy push on the council has been, you know, the overcrowding in Santana, which we didn't see. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that leads to the to other dangerous conditions. I mean, huge public health conditions, right? Problems that we're seeing with this pandemic, mm -hmm. but also, you know, just dangerous conditions where you have people, a lot of people living in a very small area, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you have like two and three families to a unit. Mm -hmm. Those things, you know, when an officer comes in or when, you know, you could really, I mean, those overcrowded conditions permeate everything, you know, just a kid's lack of ability to be able to focus when they're on a, you know, Zoom. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, classroom, yeah, or distance learning. I mean, they have, you know, you know, 10 people behind them. There's not a quiet space, you know, you're competing for the, you know, for the signal. Um, those overcrowded conditions, I mean, just make, make it really, really tough for us to um, be able to thrive, uh, you know, as a city. So we have to do something. I don't think that um, we can just sit idly by. And, you know, I, I always thought that, you know, creating more affordable housing where you don't have two and three families to a unit if you can make it affordable for one family per unit to live in, it alleviates like a lot of issues that people complain about, like parking. Everybody right. hates parking in Santana, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, none of us like it, right? Where people yeah. are putting the garbage cans, you know, where, you know, save yeah. space. And then, you know, you, well, that wouldn't happen if you didn't saturate, if you didn't have this problem with high rent and having to have three families living in one space versus one family. Because those three families, each have people who drive and then they're yeah. going to bring their cars. And so we weren't built for that sort of density. Yeah. Um, the city wasn't designed that way. And so we're really forcing that, making it tough. But, um, but yeah, it, it makes it unlivable sometimes. It makes it really difficult. Right. Right. And so like my grandparents live in the Delhi neighborhood and there's a lot of younger families on that street that they live in, but a lot of their, they have a lot of those families had kids my age and a lot of them can't move out. So they, you know, get their own cars. And now there's four or five cars in the driveway, one on the lawn, a few on the, on the sidewalk, just because, you know, they have a bunch of kids and it's too expensive to really move out on your own unless you have a really good paying job or, you know, you're willing to do kind of what you're doing with your parents at it with, you know, friends or, you know, colleagues or work coworkers or whatever. So it's just, it's, you know, you're going from one clustered environment to another. And when you said the trash can thing, you know, that's so true. Like, over the years, like Delhi has gotten really bad as far as like, you know, just putting your trash cans okay. out to save your, you know, your spot for your parking because it's so, it's so hard to find parking nowadays there. Yeah. I mean, you know, look, I've seen people get into like, you know, shouting matches. Hey, this is my space. And, you know, and, and, and um, you know, I think, again, that's another symptom of a different underlying problem. Like you said, you know, more kids are happy. You can't move out because why? Uh, you know, rents are so high. I mean, yeah. you know, they're not going to be able to do maybe what I did uh, back when, you know, I was maybe 
18 when I went off, maybe not 18, but uh, 20 went off and I was able to find an apartment, you know, share it with roommates, but it was still affordable. I mean, and this was, you know, this was, you know, years back, but now it's gotten so bad where, you know, even a family alone can't make the rent. Cause you know, I think the, uh, you know, a really alarming statistic was um, one that I just found that over 80% of our residents in Santana earn less than $53,000 a year. And there's some neighborhoods that have their AM, they, they measure it by this one thing called AMI, your average median income. Some families in, in neighborhoods like Lacey and others earn less than 20,000 a year. So that's just crazy, right? I mean, because that's not even gonna, you know, pay for you, you, you know, maybe your rent for six months, yeah. right? If you do something. And, and so I think that those statistics um, show that Santana is unique from all the other 33 cities in the county. And we need to have our public policy and, you know, guide who we have in our city, not who we want to be, but who we're supposed to be representing, right? Mm. And we have this demographic that is very challenged, that is, um, you know, rent poor. Um, and, you know, we need to make sure that our public policy is aligned to represent them and provide them with opportunities because, you know, look, I'd love not to have the problem, but the problem is here. And what do you do? Do you ignore it and just, you know, uh, you know, let this continue? But you can't. And there's different public policies that you can make to, to at least try to prevent rents from being so high and not displacing folks. Because what happens is when the rents are so high, people leave the city. They move to other areas. They'll go to San, I mean, San Bernardino became the ninth largest city um, and, and kind of um, leapfrogged Anaheim and Santana, not because everybody wants to live in San Bernardino. They just couldn't afford it here. So it was the flight to the you know, Inland Empire yeah. because those rents were more accessible. And yeah, they became like one of the largest cities within you know, five years. Mm -hmm. and, um, and it was all, I think, well, not all, but it was primarily because um, people were just priced out of this market. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing too I watched as my parents grew up and grew older, a lot of their family friends or families or relatives or other friends of theirs too, you know, they just, they started moving to the Riverside and IE and Upland and Rancho Cucamonga. And, I, and I've noticed too, as I've worked different jobs throughout my life, you know, I'll be working in like a, I worked at a Costco in Tustin and there's people coming all the way from like Lake Elsinore and, and way out there. And I'm just like, wow, like you guys are willing to sit like an hour and a half of traffic just for cheaper way of living, but also just to work in Orange County. And I think they like still want to send their kids to Orange County. So just, it, you know, it's a very desirable place to live in this area, but it's very expensive too. So it forces a lot of people out. Yeah. Cause I mean, you know, most people would say, well, look, we, we like where we grew up, right? We like yeah. the city, but, but if you can't afford it, it really makes you uh, have to make some difficult decisions and, you know, and not to say, you know, not to throw shadow on any other cities, you know, but, you know, I think, you know, this is, like you said, a desirable, just, you know, geographically area to live in. Um, and so I think that that's where we have to do a better job in making sure that at least we provide that option, that reasonable option for people to say, yeah, we, you know, we may have to pay a little bit more, but not something that's like just extraordinarily high, you know, um, where it's unreasonable and you're now creating dangerous conditions because you have people doubling and tripling up in a unit. Mm -hmm. And, you know, causing all these issues and, and, you know, that leads to public health issues as well, not just, you know, public safety or, or parking issues, but now you're getting into like life threatening conditions, right? Because especially with this pandemic, if yeah. you have a household that has 10, 12 people in it, only one person 
Yeah. It, it only takes one person to come back to that household. They're sick. They, you know, uh, they're contagious. They get everybody else. And there was this horrible story. I know, um, uh, you know, a few weeks back, I think that the times or the register covered, but it, you know, the entire household, you know, got infected, you know, um, and it was about nine people and the father head of the household, obviously the, mo the, the, the most elder um, passed away. So those stories are really um, uh, graphic and, but they let us know what the conditions are. And, you know, we're seeing that with this pandemic that the four highest zip codes in the County um, are here in Santana that are, that have the highest levels of, of COVID. Yeah. Um, so Santana and West Anaheim, they've got four zip codes that are very highly impacted. But if you look at those areas, they they are the um, immigrant, working class, low income families, right? That are out there that they can't work from home. You know, they right. they don't have luxury. They don't qualify for you know CARES Act money or unemployment, or they don't have a safety net. They're living month to month, right? And so they have to be out there. They have to be working in hospitals, still stocking shelves in grocery stores, still working in the back half of the restaurant, right, in the kitchen, and you know, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're keeping this economy going, but they're the ones who are like getting themselves exposed. And yeah. once they're exposed, they go back and it just becomes like a little, like a time bomb. Right? Yeah. And it's tough. I, I hope the pandemic has been rough for a lot of people, a lot of families, and it's affected the whole money, so many people across the world, but I hope we rethink a lot of things. And I've noticed I've had a lot more conversations just with friends or colleagues or coworkers about things like this, whether it's, you know, housing, uh, like education. I work with uh, the youth in Garden Grove. I'm a high school football coach, but I've also worked with middle schools and after school programs the past few years. And so I just, you know, I hope we just rethink these things and hopefully come out better out of this pandemic, whether it's through education, housing, public safety, like all kinds of different things. I just really hope we rethink a lot of things, get the ball rolling and just actually try to make some change instead of trying to just, you know, slap some band-aids and painkillers over things and that things that really need to be fixed and the deep root of problems, you know? So are you guys going to have a season this year? The, the, so the plan is, yeah, we're going to, we're right now we're in phase two, which means we can condition with the kids, just do push-ups, no footballs in sight. Kids are six feet apart. But the plan is for our first uh, game to be New Year's Eve. So the whole, you know, the whole season is supposed to go on in January and February in the winter. But we'll see how that goes. You know, we haven't had any hiccups yet, but uh, it's going to be kind of crazy. Yeah, I know. Well, you know what? My, my son's a senior at uh, Godinez and, okay. um, and he's a, he's a basketball player. So this is really going to be, you know, his last, hopefully, you know, if they're able to, and it looks like they're going to push that season out to maybe, you know, later in the spring. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, look, I told him, you're not going to get recruited by the NBA, man. So this is it. <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is the end of the, this is the end of the, uh, the, the, the cycle of organized ball, you know, at least, uh, at least for school. So he was looking forward to, you know, that. And I'm hoping, you know, we, we get there. We're doing better. I think, you know, there's been an effort to make sure that we saturate our neighborhoods with like mobile testing services, resources that's helped blunt the effort. And I think, um, you know, people are starting to realize, yeah, this is, you know, six months into this. Yeah, this is a real thing. Yeah. You should wear your masks, but it's, it's really, um, man, it's really, it's really difficult to hear people that still don't get it. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think it comes straight from the top, right. When, you know, when you, when, when that's message, like, Hey, this isn't a big thing. It's going to go away. Um, and the communities that they're hurt, that that's hurting the most is ours. I mean, yeah. so we're like super, super front end of this. I mean, you know, uh, our, our numbers of positivity rates are like, you know, uh, 
twice, three times, you know, what other communities are and our mortality rates, same thing. So we really are, I mean, when you, when this is looked, when we look back on this later and we see which communities were the most impacted and the most hurt, it's going to be ours. Yeah. It'll be, you know, and it's going to be a painful thing to see like, Hey, did we really have to sacrifice all these lives? Did we really, cause it's not just, you know, with the mortality, but businesses in Santana are going to fail as a result of this. I mean, we're going to have tons of, you know, businesses that, you know, fail. There's going to be people out of work, people living, you know, uh, in precarious situations. So yeah, there's, there's going to be a lot of fallout and, and, you know, questions will be asked like what, you know, what the hell happened? What, you know, yeah. Why did we do? How do we not see this coming? Right. Mm-hmm. And I think the biggest thing too, especially at the higher level, I just felt like things became so like, okay, you're either one side or the other. And if you support so-and-so, then you're automatically racist. You're automatically bad. Like there's no, there's no cross. You can't support one thing that's contradictory with another stance. So I just felt like it just turned very political with the whole mask and like believing in COVID. And, you know, it's even the country, look at the country as a whole, like the South is already reopening high schools and sports are continuing as normal. The Midwest is very different. Texas is different. You know, the uh, Northeast is very different, still locked down, kind of like the West Coast is. But it's, it's crazy to see just like in all levels of that, whether it's high school sports, college sports, and just other areas of the government. I think Florida just announced the other day that they opened up like completely, like they're not even in any phases. They're just completely reopening up. But they've had the most deaths as a state. And it's kind of like, yeah, hot, you know, it, it's, but I mean, yeah. yeah, it's weird to see the disconnect. You know, we're supposed to be United States, but we're very disconnected right now. Yeah, but even in our county, man, I mean, if you think about it, the county has done a horrible job. And they're the agency that's vested with this responsibility and these rights to take care of health, public health, and and social services. So they received millions of dollars, and they've received millions of dollars throughout this thing early on, months back, and they never spent it where they knew the problem was going to be. So that, to me, is like, yeah, we look at how ridiculous, you know, um, Florida is and some of these other places. But man, our county has been completely incompetent. They've been, I mean, look, bordering on criminal, right? When you have monies that you could have spent months back and invested into making sure that people get tested, people have the resources and people are informed, um, they sat on their hands, right? And they, you know, they, I think, really were listening to folks in South County who were like opposed to this and, you know, saying that masks aren't, aren't important and, you know, hey, don't take away my liberties and, you know, and that type of thing. The reason why, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it's so difficult for us. And I think so difficult for me is that our people were the ones who are being sacrificed. Like, right. yeah, that, that ignorance or that lack of attention, that lack of care um, had real consequences. And, um, and so, you know, we don't have to go far, man, as, as much as we can ridicule, you know, some states like Florida, our County has been yeah. just belligerent to us. I mean, they've been so harsh that um, it's painful. And that's why, you know, I'm hoping that Santana does need, like Long Beach and, and uh, Pasadena, they have their own public health directors, right, and public health departments, because we are a unique enough city and a large enough city that our, our needs are very different from South County and North County. I mean, we have, again, a population that, you know, they get their health care by going to the emergency room. I mean, that's, that's crazy, right? And we have a lot of people who are, who are underinsured or uninsured, and that's not the same experience that others and you know outside of Santana have so I think we need to have some department or some director that will help devise more wellness efforts more ways to you know uh, create um, just safety public health safety for our community 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was an interesting thing too when I went away to Sacramento State for college. <clears throat> When you say you're from Orange County, people have a certain perception, right, of South County and the different TV shows that they've had. But I felt like growing up in Santa Ana and a little bit of Orange, too, and then like working in Garden Grove and then Anaheim, not too far, then even Stanton and smaller cities like that. I mean, that those like five, six cities are very different from like your Belinda's and Santa Margarita's and San Clemente's and all those different cities. And it's it's com- it's a completely different lifestyle. They're like, oh, you must live so good. And it's like, nah, like I had to ride my bike to school and like you know, I was helping out my parents at a young age and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's a very different livelihood that's portrayed on the television and screens, you know? Yeah, you're right. I think anybody who, I mean, outside of here, you know, who hasn't visited Santana, they're like, oh, well, you're in Orange County. I mean, you guys are an affluent community. You know, you guys, uh, you know, I, I, what's that show? The Real, Li- the Real Housewives of Orange yeah. County. I think that really did us in, man. I mean, on top of everything. <laughs> but, you know, but the, and, and, and also, I mean, we have to remember, I mean, Orange County for years was the, um, sort of the stronghold for the Republican Party. I mean, this was where the Republican Party really, um, you know, provided resources and, you know, money. So a lot of the money came from here to fund things, you know, um, that were, you know, kind of hostile to communities like ours. Um, But I think, you know, yeah, you're right. I think now we're starting to realize that, you know, Santana is very demographically similar to places like East LA, you know, and we have those same challenges um, that those communities have. And, we're now starting to say we're, we're, we have almost two societies in Orange County. We have, you know, uh, you know, our experience in, in, in Santa Ana and the experience, like you said, South County and other areas. And look, and that's fine. I mean, I, I, I think that there's nothing that we have to be ashamed of. I think if anything, we embrace it and we say, hey, these are things that we celebrate. Diversity, difference in culture, you know, different languages. Those are all positives, you know, um, you know, the, you know, the history that we have here. But we also have to realize our needs are different, right? And our, you know, how we allocate our resources should be different than neighboring cities who don't have our challenges. Mm-hmm. If we understand ours, we can then make better decisions on how we provide um, services to people. And I just think our needs are very different from the needs of like the cities that you know we were talking about. And that's why an agency like the county can't do that well because they don't understand, I think, our needs well. And if they do, it's even worse to think that they're not addressing it. Mm-hmm. So I do want to backtrack a little bit. You first ran for a city council in 2007. What encouraged you to kind of go that political route and pursue a career in that? Yeah, man. Uh, uh, who knew? I don't know what I was thinking. But uh, actually, I was, I was appointed. So um, I didn't run the first time. So there was um, the, uh, an opening on the city council because the council member there had um, won an assembly race. So they left half a term left on their, um, on their council term. So we went through an interview process and the council got to appoint somebody. So I filled out that term. And the first time I actually ran for uh, office was in 2008. Okay. Um, and so, you know, I mean, more than anything, what it, the reason I did it was because I think for a lot of us that left and came back, I always felt like, Hey, I have this obligation or this, you know, maybe a debt that I wanted to repay. Like, I, what I always saw is people from Santana who would go on and be successful, they'd leave and never come back, right? right. So you had this human capital, um, uh, you know, escape, right? Or this, uh, you know, this, this loss of human capital where, you know, a lot of the folks who were prepared to help went to go help other communities, right? And, um, and I thought if I ever make it back here, you know, I'm going to try to do something. And, and so 
I always thought public policy, you know, the legislative route was the right way to go because we could design good uh, public policy that um, will help our communities. And so, you know, just things that I saw as a kid that when my parents would go, you know, it's not like we would go often, but if we had to go to the city um, uh, or city hall for whatever reason, I remember them being treated really harshly, right? Because they didn't speak English well. Um, so little things like, you know, one of the first things we did was introduce translation equipment and just, you know, interpreters that if somebody came, didn't understand, hey, you put on the gear, somebody translates it for you, at least you feel part of your community. And, um, and uh, things like, you know, other things that I saw that just weren't working well, I just thought, let me see if I can lend my talents to this. Um, and so that kind of uh, put a bug in me. And, you know, and I, I ran for a student senate actually in college. So I was a student senator at Berkeley. Um, and so uh, my wife ran my campaign. So, yeah, I think it's all her fault, man. I don't blame her, you know, because, she, you know, she was able to uh, find a path for us to win. And so when we came here, she's been helping me with my campaigns. And, you know, we just got, in, got involved. And, and, you know, I think, um, you know, there needed to be a different voice because I think the city had been going down the same thing. Of, you know, let's just do the same thing over and over again. But I'm really hopeful, man, that, uh, look, your generation now, I see uh, a lot of people who are running for office. And I, I know it's disillusioning sometimes when you see politics, especially the ugly stuff at the national level, right? right. Um, people say, I don't want anything to do with that. That is horrible. But it really is a noble thing to do. And I've always felt that way. Like, hey, you're giving of yourself um, to help your community and people that you care about. Um, and I think it really is a noble profession when it's done well. When it's abused or when people do it for the wrong reasons, it is really bad and can be distorted. But when you're doing it for, the, you know, for righteous reasons, I think um, it's a really awesome thing to do. And I'm, I feel privileged and honored that I had the opportunity to do it. Like, I figure if I walk away uh, and, and things don't work out for me, I'm going to be great. You know, I, I, I have, you know, my, uh, uh, law practice. I have my kids, I have family. Um, and I, you know, I've been away from them a lot just doing this, but, um, but you know, I just think I don't want young, the sort of, you know, this next generation to say, look, I don't want to get involved, man. That is too ugly. That is too messy because right. there are ugly stories, but we need good leadership. We really do because, um, uh, this is going to be handed off to somebody and who takes those reins is going to make a difference. But yeah, like I said, I'm hopeful and I, I, I feel optimistic because I see a lot of good people, a lot of good young people saying, you know, I want to be part of this. I want to help define what, you know, um, what we do in the next coming years. And I want to help define what Santana is. Yeah. And I think a lot of times too, there's that great quote is like, you have to become the change you want to see. So if you're, you know, you're tired of whether it's at a local level or at a national level, you're not tired of people that are put in power of doing correct things for your communities. And, you know, eventually it takes, you know, it may, may take some like sacrifice in your own personal life and your own personal goals, but to do something like that and get you an office. And I just think, you know, at the end of the day too, like the government, uh, what does the constitution say? It's like, it's a government made by the people for the people. And I think I misquoted that, but you know what I'm saying? It's, it's for the people and made by the people. Right. Right. So it's, you know, it's the whole aspect of, okay, well, we, who are the people like we are, like people like us and these communities, whether it doesn't matter our skin tone, you know, you know, I was born here and there's other people who look very different than me that were also born here too. And they have opportunities to run for different local offices and eventually maybe national offices one day. Right. No, but I mean, you know, like I said, what I've been heartened by is I've never seen the number of people, you know, um, want to speak at a council meeting 
and um, oh. young. I mean, like literally hundreds, right? Yeah. I've never seen that before. And we were talking about things like, you know, the, the budget, you know, uh, the police department, housing, and really, really articulate voices. So, you know, um, you know, people talking about policy, people talking about like, you know, decisions and options and balancing interests. And so I, I like I said, you know, once I heard that and, you know, I've, I've been trying to enjoy this because I figure this could be my swan song. So I want to, you know, I want to appreciate, you know, all this because I feel like hopefully there's been some inspiration also given to, you know, to people who are younger to say, you know what? Yeah, I, this is on me, you know, uh, because for the longest time, uh, sort of politics here wrote off the youth. Like mm -hmm. they said, oh, they'll never show up. They don't vote. They come and, you know, kind of right. get involved every once in a while and then they kind of go away. But I think it's different this time. I really do. And I think, um, you know, they, there's been some inspiration that is triggered like this interest, like, Hey, this is, this is my, uh, this is my responsibility. And, and like you said, you know, if you want to be critical, if you want to say, Hey, this isn't right. Well, you know, you put yourself in that position or put others in that position that you believe in. And I think that if we do exercise that, I mean, we look, we could define our, we could define our path really, really easily. Mm -hmm. So going back to your election and your campaign this year, what are some of the tougher obstacles of running an election and running a campaign during a quarantine year during this pandemic? Oh man, it's tough, man, because before, you know, you could have events, you could have receptions and, you know, and you could, you know, uh, get to know people and just, you know, sit and talk right now, you know, it's, it's scary even going to somebody's door, right? Cause you don't want to offend anybody. And, and, you know, um, so you can't have that human exchange and, you know, zoom and these sort of virtual, uh, exchanges only go so far, but, and you're reaching a real limited group of people. So it really is challenging. Um, just messaging, uh, you know, what you're trying to, um, introduce. And so, so I think it's, it's teaching all of us, but we're all at the same sort of disadvantage, I guess, you know, on that, but it really does, I think, make it difficult for the, for the average voter or for the average resident to say, you know, I, I don't know what this person is, you know, is, is, is promoting and, you know, what their policy principles are, what their platform is about. Um, so we're trying to, you know, we're trying to make it as easy and, you know, create a very user-friendly website. We're trying to do a lot of social media, which is funny. The last time I ran in 2016, that was the last cycle I ran in. Mm. Um, I use zero social media. Wow. I mean, it was crazy, right? I mean, to go from like 2016 to now, our, now we're like, you know, heavy, heavy social media. Yeah. And uh, you never had to use it before. Before it was all like, hey, we'll send some pieces of mail. Um, we'll do a little bit of walking, uh, knocking on doors. And that was it. But now, really, this, you know, uh, these platforms um, and your generation really gets its information not from the mail not from the news, right. newspaper or anything, you get it from social media. Right. And you get from, you know, sources that you feel um, there's some trust, right? Um, but it is a whole different world. So I, I just can't see how anybody could do things the traditional way anymore, the conventional way, that's gone. I mean, that model is over. Um, so it has been learning for me, because I'm an old dog, right? I mean, I learned different, you know, our, our, our strategies were totally different. We've had to pivot and change and, you know, and it's been, look, it's been, it's been interesting, you know, cause uh, you know, now we're doing videos, now we're doing zoom calls, we're doing, you know, uh, you know Facebook live things. Um, 
but it's 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 been great because we've had to just adjust to to the circumstances but i don't think that i don't that that's one thing about this pandemic and about this time the you know we'll never go back to what it was like before right where it, you know, knocking on doors and, you know, mailing stuff. I think if anything, the social media is probably going to push a lot of that aside and it's going to be the dominant way we, uh, we message. And, and, you know, we saw it done well when, when Obama ran, I mean, he was a master at it. Right. Yeah. And I think, I think Trump did the same thing for his base. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, they used it masterfully as well. Uh, for us at the local level, I think now we're starting to realize the power of that, you know, and, um, and really, you know, I mean, where people, find their information that that really is the key mm -hmm. now speaking from experience just because i i know i turned 18 in 2012 and so i got to vote for um that obama mitt romney election and basically i felt like as a young person that i wasn't properly educated on the importance of voting local um i, I voted for the president but i think I, i'm pretty sure i left the rest of my ballot blank because i didn't know anything about who was running for these positions in city council and stuff how do you, I guess, far as far as like reaching out to younger people who are just fresh out of high school in this younger demographic, the importance of voting, not so much on the presidential election, because that's something that we all talk about, but so much on the local level for city council, mayor, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, no, that's, that's, you know, sort of that's our challenge, right? And, you know, because people, as much as, you know, you want, as much as, you know, I'll speak for myself, I want to change at the top. And it's super important that we get involved for the presidential election. Um, Look, who are who represents you at the local level is right. hundred times more important. And I gotta tell you because I mean, you can have you know we were living under a really you know and we're living under a really difficult, challenging administration that is very hostile to to communities like Santana. And I can tell you that our funding's been compromised because of the positions that they've taken towards communities like ours. Um, so those folks that you put in office locally are the ones who are going to be fighting for your interests, right? Who are going to be making those compelling cases and who are going to be saying, we need more resources. We need this. These are our policy, you know, opinions and our views. And so I think that, um, you know, we, we don't always, we don't always give that same level of focus and attention to people who are going to be your council members, who are going to be your mayor, your school board members, you know, people who are going to affect your life directly, like school board members, you know, they affect you because they change policies on how your kids are going to be taught. And yeah. then, you know, so, I mean, a president doesn't do that, right? Um, you know, a, a state legislator uh, doesn't do that. Your school board members is going to say, uh, like they recently did, and I applaud, um, we want ethnic studies to be a requirement, you know, mm -hmm. for everybody who graduates. And super important decision that's not going to be made, uh, you know, uh, at the federal level, those things. So your local representatives really help you. Again, Santana is a sanctuary city. That was a local decision because we have so many undocumented immigrant families here that, that we're protecting their rights to confidentiality. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, those are local decisions. Uh, you know, how we police ourselves, that's not a federal decision. That's a local question. Um, you know, how much money do we, do we invest in our local libraries? You know, do we invest in our, you know, programs for youth? Um, how do we change, how do we do our housing policy? So I think those really, like if you ask somebody, you know, what's most important to you? You want to be safe? You want to be able to, you know, drive on a smooth road? You don't, you, you don't want potholes and to, to mess up your shocks and your car. Uh, you know, 
those are local decisions. So if you think about it, you should know who your local people are more importantly than the people that, you know, who don't touch your lives every day, you know, so we touch your lives every day. So I think trying to get that instilled in people is tough, man, because it's, it's counterintuitive. You think, mm -hmm. hey, the election's all about the president. Well, not really. I mean, the, the down ballot issues, those propositions and those people you're voting for, 100 times more important to your daily life. Mm -hmm. So speaking as your time as a city council member, I was reading up on some of the stuff that you were able to get accomplished and whatnot. And I wanted to ask you between, from your own perspective, out of all the things that you've accomplished, was there anything that really kind of stood out above from the rest that you were just, you know, thought back and like, wow, I was really able to accomplish that big thing that will be a lasting impact? Yeah, you know, I, I think one of the legacy issues I think that'll be really important to me when I, you know, when I do kind of go off into the sunset will be, um, you know, this deportation fund that started as a really small concept where we just saw a lot of our families being separated, a lot of our people being separated from their families, right? They, you know, parents wouldn't come home to their children um, and they were being taken away and swept up. And myself as, an, as, as a lawyer realized that when you go to those deportation hearings and you're by yourself or you're accompanied by your attorney, totally different result. It's almost, you know, night and day. If you go in unrepresented, you're, you're, the, 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 the possibility of you being deported is almost certain. Mm -hmm. If you go in with an attorney that's going to represent you, your chances go to 70% that you're going to be able to um, have an argument to make before the court so you can stay. So we funded this thing called the deep, the, it was called the Universal Legal Defense Fund back then, but it basically paid for an attorney to accompany you to your hearing, which the constitution says you do in criminal cases, but in immigration cases, that's not the case. So, um, so we did this and we got a, a matching fund from a federal nonprofit that gave us $100,000. We did 60 and since then, we've been doing 200,000 towards this program each year. Um, it's a big accomplishment to me because I think that we've been able to keep people and families together. Mm -hmm. And the reason why that's important is once you separate families, that family struggles, that neighborhood starts struggling and our community struggles, right? So people don't realize it's like a ripple effect. You disrupt this household, it disrupts the neighborhood, it disrupts your community. And the more you keep people intact, you make them feel like, Hey, you're safe. You, you know, go to work, you, you know, follow, follow the rules you'll be all right. Um, but that is one sort of long lasting effort. You know, I, I've worked on affordable housing stuff. I've worked on the sanctuary city stuff. I've worked on things like one of the things when we came out of the recession, I really advocated for a reserve policy. So if we ever get in a place like we are now, another natural disaster and another national emergency, we'll have money in the bank like all of us should have. We didn't have that before I came on the council. Wow. Myself as a bankruptcy attorney, I said, no, we're going to keep money in there no matter what. Because I know the rainy day will come, and uh, shit, who knew? Sorry about that. Who knew that? Uh, look at the, uh, you know, I was going to be in my first year as a councilman dealing with like a global recession, right, in yeah. 2008, and then now as I'm leaving, we're dealing with a global pandemic. Um, but look, um, I feel proud of the decisions that I've made because I think that um, we got ourselves through the recession. I think with good decision making, um, intelligent, you know. Um, thoughtful decisions will get ourselves through this pandemic as well. Um, you know, so that that's where I feel confident. Mm -hmm. So at the time of this recording, election is less than uh, 40, election day is less than 42. <clears throat> okay. 
But what are some of the things you're doing to ramp up your campaign and just spread your message to the local people of Santa Ana? You know, right now, we're, I'm just trying to be as visible as possible. You know what I do a lot, and I'm actually going to be doing right after I get off this uh, call, is going to a food distribution event. Mm. So, you know, we don't realize how many families are food deprived, right? And um, I'm really grateful that we have organizations like um, organization called Power of One Foundation, the other ones United Across Border Foundations. What they do is they, gra uh, they uh, gather uh, food items. and provide them to the community, right? And so that to me is like a basic need that we need to address. Um, what, what I've been doing there is just trying to make sure families are fed. Um, what I'm trying to do uh, personally for the campaign is just make myself as visible on social media, on um, you know, platforms like yours and others to be able to explain what it is that I um, stand for, what, what my vision is, right? And um, and I think that's important for people to evaluate because I think there's six of us in this race. This is the first time in 26 years wow. there will be a new mayor, right? So that mayor is termed out. That's been here. <laughs> yeah, man, probably older than you are or what? Uh, or, yeah, or, or, yeah or, I'm 26, so just yeah. the same age. Yeah, man, you've never, you've never had a mayor in wow. South Florida other than the one that you have now. That'll right. change. So we put term limits. Uh, that, that's another accomplishment that I'm proud of. So, you know, in 2012, we, uh, we put term limits on the mayor's seat. So, you know, they would have a reasonable time. And it's eight years now, the term. Look, if you can't accomplish what you need to do in eight years, there's something wrong with you, not yeah. something wrong with the office, right? Um, so, you know, I'm just trying to make myself as available as I can, you know, safely, right? Because we can't do it anymore in person. But um, it's just trying to push the message out now through social media. We are going to be mailing some stuff out. Uh, we are going to be on radio, uh, Spanish language and, um, and Vietnamese radio. Um, but you know, it's, it's just trying to, trying to make sure people know, uh, who we are and what we stand for and how we stand out from the other candidates. Nice. Outside of the election, what are some other goals that you do have for the year 2020 that you'd like to accomplish? Oh man, I just want 2020 to end, man. It is, you know, every time I think it can't get worse, something else happens, right? So, um, you know, it's funny that that night that um, Justice Ginsburg, Ginsburg passed away. Mm -hmm. So I just looked at my wife and I said, this is, this year just gets darker and darker. Right. And uh, we were big, you know, um, supporters of hers. And, you know, as, you know, I have a daughter who's 15 years old and we took her to go see, you know, Notorious RBG, the movie and everything. And because to us, she really represented what we think was, you know, was important for, you know, raising a daughter and having right. those, seeing that story. So it's going to be probably for us, you know, uh, getting through this year. Um, I'm a big basketball fan, so it didn't start well when Kobe passed away. And I knew, oh, shit. Right? It, was, it was just all downhill from there. Right? Yeah. I still um, remember, I still remember thinking, cause I got the phone call from my cousin and, Cause I was in like Lake Arrowhead. So I wasn't really getting good reception. I couldn't check like online and yeah, I just thought like, Oh, this is going to be the biggest news of the year. Like nothing's going to top this Kobe pass. Like what? Like, and sure enough, that blew out of the water like a month later. Yeah. It, you know, uh, just, just crazy. So I, yeah, to the extent that, you know, we can survive this year, get through it. I mean, hopefully, you know, um, outside the, outside the election, it's just trying to, you know, get back to the family a little bit more. Cause I know I've been spending a lot of time on the campaign because it's funny with the you know, zoom calls and everything else, even though you don't have to be out, this can be almost more uh, 
stressful on you because there is no commute time. Like you're on one call after another, after another, and you're just constantly there. And, and days blend into one another, hours blend into them. And it's not yeah. like having your sort of typical routine where, hey, you, you know, it's Monday through Friday, you know, it's after five o'clock, okay, you're done. This just, just goes. So, right. um, so it'll be just trying to regroup with them. I'm going to go see if I can visit my son back east. And so I haven't seen him in a while, so I'm, I'm missing him. So that's probably going to be a priority one. <laughs> that's cool. Where is, he, where is he going to school at over in back east? He's at Northeastern. Okay, he's in, very cool. He's in, he's in Boston, man. He loves Boston. I don't know how he, you know, uh, that's a far way from, that's about as far, far away as he could get from us. So I don't know if that was a message to us, but uh, <laughs> he, likes, he likes it back there, man. It's all right. Sometimes kids, at least from my experience, sometimes kids just want to get away for a little bit and then we come back home and realize how much we missed. So that, that at least from my experience and standpoint. <laughs> well, we're, we're crossing our fingers, man. I don't know because he, uh, he, he's enjoying it. He likes, and, and Boston's a great city, you know, yeah. so it's it. It's easy to get around in and everything, but he really enjoys that. But like you said, I think when you're in college, you just enjoy the experience about, of learning and being exposed to different things and other people's experiences, you know, other students from all over the world. And so I think he's, he's enjoying that. But, uh, but yeah, I'll definitely need some time just to, you know, just to hang back with family for a little bit and just, uh, you know, get back to normalcy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, before we wrap things up, I do like to ask some, like kind of a, I call them quick hitters, but they're not really quick. They're just more to make you think outside the box. So the first question I'd like to ask you is, if you could talk to any person, dead or alive in history, who would you want to talk to the most? You know, I'd, I'd, I'd like to – I read a book on him, and uh, Alexander Hamilton really, like, piqued my interest with the play and everything else because he helped, you know, once I started, you know, you know when I read his biography, I realized he helped draft, like, the framework – and he was the architect of our, you know, of our system of government mm -hmm. and um, ask him, you know, what he was thinking, because it really was meant to keep the masses at bay um, and to protect sort of the ruling class. Because it was sort of, def you know, it was defined uh, after the um, uh, English uh, right. you know, and, their, and their system of government. So, yeah, I mean, um, so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> exactly. Hamilton. <laughs> All right, nice. If you could have any kind of toppings on a pizza, what would you like? Oh man, I I always go with pepperoni, sausage, and mushrooms. Okay, Those are it. Nice. Keep it simple. Okay. All right, nothing wrong with that. Let's say metaphoric or hypothetically, you're stranded on a tropical island, but food and water are provided. What are three things that you'd like to bring to help pass the time? Music, a chessboard, and um, uh. Something to draw with, something okay. to do, create art with. Okay, nice. Do you have any like particular favorite artists, bands, or groups that you, music wise? Yeah, you know, my my uh, mine's a spectrum. So I like, um, you know, I like uh, people from the spectrum of Manat to Santana. You know, what I mean, okay. Uh, th those are my those are my spectrums. <laughs> okay, very cool. And last question: If you could give any advice to a younger self, what would it be? To you know, to, to, to feel more confident about yourself, mm -hmm. to feel more confident and just know that things are going to be okay. Awesome. Yeah. Well, before you go ahead and go, be sure to plug wherever you like, where we could find you on social media, your website and anything else that you'd like to promote. All right. Well, look, whoever wants to learn a little bit more about me, we've got everything up on our website. It's www.sedimentalformayor.com, uh, sedimentalformayor.com. And, you know, hopefully if we can't, if, you know, the questions aren't answered there, 
there's a link to be able to uh, communicate with us through email and through phone and we're happy to answer any questions but i appreciate you man thank you for uh for for you know inviting me and telling my story and look i'm real proud of what you're doing i know uh you know your aunt you know your your your, your mom um and you come from a great family and uh this is great to know that um your generation is stepping up and doing a lot uh a lot of the stuff maybe that we weren't able to get to at your age but uh like i said i feel optimistic about this awesome thank you very much Boom, that's a wrap for another episode of the My Mike and I podcast, episode 124. And thank you again to Vicente Sarmiento. If you want more information on the candidate running for mayor in the city of Santa Ana, you can check out sarmientoformayor.com, spelled S-A-R-M-I-E-N-T-O for mayor.com. So, as always, as I end the show... Man, I hope you guys are just continuing to strive, continuing to work whatever obstacles you may be facing with. I love every single one of you guys. Yo, I really appreciate the support. Um, man, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, we'd greatly appreciate the time if you could leave a rating and a review. And if you're listening on you know, Spotify or any of the other accounts, you know, be sure to follow, be sure to subscribe. And be sure to, you know, if you can, post it on your social media, send it to a friend that you may think like the show and, and whatnot. And, you know, last but not least, just... You know, always, 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 always never stop seeking knowledge. That's that's something I want to kind of really, like, emphasize and just, you know, me working with kids and, and just through my life experience, the more knowledge I, I gain. And not so much like, oh, yeah, like study the history books and that kind of stuff. Knowledge about self and knowledge about different theories, ideologies and all that kind of stuff. Man, just the more, the more you learn, the more you grow as a human being. And we are pretty fantastic individuals. I don't know how I got onto this, though. Nonetheless, uh, was it chase your dreams, not checks, as I always say too. Shout out to Generic Sports for producing the instrumental. Shout out to Vince Correa for producing the design. And also remember, check out popple.co. Use promo code Locker for twenty percent off. That's popl.co. And if you go to Phoenix Fit, spelled F N X F I T dot com, and you can use promo code My Mike and I for fifteen percent off on every single purchase on that site once again guys thank you again very much don't forget to follow the instagram page at my period mike and period i the twitter at underscore noah alvarez and i hope you guys have a wonderful week month year continue to hit your goals continue to overcome your obstacles because i know you can do it i believe in yourself i believe in you and you should believe in yourself i believe in myself it's been a journey hasn't been easy but now i'm rambling damn i'm just gonna end this right here (laughs) thanks again guys noah alvarez my mike and i podcast signing off till next time